Well, beloved, if you've got your Bible, I hope you do. If you don't, you got one in the pew in front of you. Turn with me to Luke 13. As today we come to the end of another chapter in this gospel, we have been and continue to be on a spirit-inspired journey to the cross. And as we've been looking at this bit by bit, passage by passage, business is picking up. Our text is Luke 13, 31 through 35. We're going to read it, but first, let's go to the Lord in prayer one more time, will we? Don't, ah, I can't talk. Let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you once again for the opportunity to open a Bible. Not everyone has that freedom. We thank you that we do, and we thank you that we can, and we thank you that we are Because it's not just a book you've given us, it is your revelation of yourself. It is a history of how you have worked, and it reveals to us your plans for us and for all of the world in the future. We get a glimpse of all three of these things in the passage we're going to look at today. Five verses. And we thank you, Father, for that. We we pray that you will show us the grace of opening our spiritual eyes and ears, of opening our hearts that we might receive all you have to give us, that we might receive it, and that we may do so for your glory. We are here, Father. We need to be here, Father, to glorify you. That's the whole game. That's the whole ball of wax. And may we endeavor to preach to that end and listen to that end and apply the truth to that end. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke 31, or 13, verses 31 through 35. Just at that time, some Pharisees approached, saying to him, Go away, leave here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox... Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I reach my goal. Nevertheless, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day, for it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together, just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not have it. Behold, your house is is left to you desolate. And I say to you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Beloved, we live in a world which wants to delete the name of Jesus from our vocabularies. Um, Every now and then you'll hear some story and on Facebook you see this stuff posted from time to time and and sometimes it even makes it to the news about how, you know, a middle school uh, assignment, a middle school class is teaching the kids to appreciate the nation of Islam, the, the religion of Islam, and things like that. But if a student were to write a paper that says, you know, Jesus is the person I respect the most, that becomes a problem. If you, if you bring the Bible and you, you say this is the truth in the schools, that becomes a problem. Why? Because the Bible points us to Jesus Christ, and that's a problem. Even, you know, with few exceptions, our politicians, even the ones who claim to be Christians and even the ones who are more friendly to religious liberty, and we're thankful for that, but even most of them, when they speak about religion, they invoke the name 
uh, or, or they don't. They rarely invoke the name of Jesus. There's one notable exception in the current political landscape, but by and large, our civic leaders speak in platitudes about God and about being people of faith, whatever uh, that means. And I guess that phrase can mean whatever you want it to mean, and that's kind of the point of not saying the name of Jesus, not mentioning Jesus. And that's nothing new, by the way. If you go back and if you look at history, you look at the writings of the Founding Fathers, you know, we like to think that America is a Christian nation, that we have a Christian history. And to be sure, uh, and I was even speaking about this in Sunday school today, people knew the Bible a lot better back then than they do today. And people were definitely more familiar with the Bible and with the teachings of Christianity than, than they are today. But even if you go back and look at the writings of the Founding Fathers, you, are not, you, you might be surprised, I guess I would say, by how little the name of Jesus does show up. You see all kinds of references to a creator or to the deity or to you know, George Washington, for instance, liked to refer to divine providence. And I'm not saying anything about him spiritually. I'm just making an observation that the name of Jesus was not as common as we might think it used to be. Uh, Abraham Lincoln, for instance, uh, didn't refer to religious themes hardly at all until he started running for office. And I, I'll, just, I'll just throw that out there, and I'm just going to leave that right there uh, for observation. The point I want to make is that Jesus has long been a name used for political purposes, for personal purposes, for personal gain. But by and large, we don't want to deal with him. By and large, we want to avoid dealing with who he actually was uh, the world doesn't want to deal with the person and the work of Jesus Christ. The world doesn't want to, to, to have the implications of everything he said brought to bear on us. What he has done, what he will do. Because there's a future for Jesus, just as there's a present for Jesus. And I say that almost 2,000 years after Jesus walked the earth. But know this, that the same thing was happening when he walked the earth too. And we, we've seen this in the Gospel of Luke. We see it today as well. Jesus did have crowds. Jesus did have those who followed him. But a great many people, the majority of people, did want to be rid of him. Especially the religious leaders. And their influence carried on to others. The, they wanted to be rid of Jesus. They wanted him gone. They wanted him to, to, to go away. And sometimes they were willing to take steps to ensure that happened. Like hounds sniffing out, pray to be taken out. So Jesus' enemies were with him. Of course, it started a long time before Jesus' ministry even began. It started when Jesus was a toddler and he was targeted for death by none other than Herod the Great, the, the, the Roman governor of, of basically all of Israel, Herod the Great, and Magi from the east, came and said, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We want to worship him. Herod found out where he was to be born, and we know we associate that story with the Christmas season, but really it was probably two years after Jesus was born because every male in Bethlehem two years and under was slaughtered at the hands of Herod the Great, uh, except Jesus was supernaturally delivered through dreams to Joseph and he went to Egypt. But it didn't take long for people to be hunting for Jesus. And that's the point. It didn't take long for people to be hunting for Jesus. For the hounds to be out. It didn't take long in his earthly ministry for even more people to mark him out. 
when Jesus, you know, very early in his ministry, John chapter 2, he goes into the temple. He cleanses out the money changers. That makes him a target to the religious establishment. He goes to Galilee, again, very early in his ministry, Luke 4, to his hometown of Nazareth. He goes to the synagogue on the Sabbath. He reads from Isaiah, messianic prophecies, and he says, guess what? They're fulfilled in your hearing. Those prophecies that I just read, they apply to me. They tried to throw him off of a cliff. The Pharisees, over the course of the Gospels, and we have seen all of this already in Luke, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, the Herodians, the, the, the chief priests, sometimes Jews who wouldn't give one another the time of day proved that the, the, the old adage, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? Pharisees and Sadducees coming together for no other reason than they all hate Jesus. And, and, and that's what we're seeing here. They wanted him gone and people were conspiring to kill him. Well, in Luke 13, Luke doesn't tell us this. What we've been seeing over the past few chapters is that Jesus has been on this journey. And he's been going to various towns and villages throughout Judea, which is the, the, the province where Jerusalem is. Bethlehem is in that province uh, also. But he's going through these towns and villages, and we've been seeing that over the course of the past several weeks and months. But now in Luke 13, Luke doesn't tell us this. We get this from other Gospels. But now he has crossed over the Jordan River. He's east of the Jordan River, east of Judea, in a province called Perea. Now after Herod the Great died, and Herod the Great died basically right after he ordered all those two-year-olds killed. He died that year. Right after that, his kingdom was split up and between different sons. And what you've got here is in Perea, the significance that he's in Perea now is that he's now in a territory like Galilee. It's governed by a man by the name of Herod Antipas, who is one of the sons of Herod the Great, who ruled, by the way, for a long time. He ruled from about 4 B.C. to A.D. 39. So he had a 43-year reign. He died a few years after Jesus was taken back up into heaven. But um, in verse 31, in Perea, Pharisees, and remember the Pharisees were the Jews who fastidiously kept the law and even more so the traditions of men, the, the man-made stuff. We've talked a lot about that. They approached Jesus saying, Go away, leave here. And it could be that these Pharisees just wanted him to cross back over the river to Judea because if he was in Judea, then he was in the jurisdiction of the Sanhedrin, that Jewish ruling council that convened in Jerusalem. And we're going to see a lot more of them uh, as we move on in the gospel and then in Acts. But maybe they just didn't want Jesus near them. It could be. You know, kind of, you stink. We don't like you. Get away from us. After all, you know, what have we, have, what, what did we just see? Last Sunday we were looking at verses 22 through 30 and what did we see Jesus say there? That you Jews are going to come to the door of the kingdom and it's going to be closed to you. So uh, maybe they just didn't want him around because he was saying that type of thing. In any event, the reason they gave for wanting Jesus to leave was because of somebody they hated just as much if not more than Jesus. Herod wants to kill you because Herod Antipas, they hated Herod. They hated him because, first of all, he wasn't Jewish. And to have someone who's not Jewish ruling over the Jews, well, they didn't like that one bit. So they didn't like him for that reason. But even worse, 
Herod Antipas had built his capital city of Tiberias, which is on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. He built it right over a Jewish cemetery, which defiled it. And then he put idols up all over the place. So this made him very much repugnant to the Jews. And of course, Jesus had more than enough reason not to be a fan of Herod Antipas because it's Herod Antipas who's the one who locked John the Baptist up in prison. It's Herod Antipas who eventually had him executed. John was arrested, by the way, if you recall. Why was he arrested by Herod Antipas? Because John said, you've got to repent. You are, you've, married, you've taken your brother's wife and married her. You've got to repent. And Herod arrested him for that. And then Herodias, the, the wife, would, you know, his head on a platter. She wanted his, so that's what happened. Why Herod wanted to kill Jesus is not clear. Because in the past, he'd wanted to meet with Jesus. And indeed, later on, when we see Jesus arrested, he's going to be sent to Pilate. Pilate's going to send him to Herod. And when Jesus has this meeting with Herod Antipas there... He seems to be more fascinated with Jesus than anything else, although Jesus doesn't answer him at all. But he's not so much thirsting to kill him. He, he doesn't answer uh, Herod. Ultimately, it could be that the Pharisees simply wanted to, to say Herod killed Jesus to scare him off. There are, of course, some other possibilities. Some possible reasons he might have wanted Jesus dead is that, well, he had John killed, and now Jesus has this following, and and so maybe he, he is fearing vengeance. Or maybe he's heard, he had definitely heard about Jesus' supernatural power, so maybe he's trying to protect himself by getting rid of the problem. Or perhaps Rome wanted their governors to keep their regions in peace, the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. And so to keep his spot, he needed to keep the peace, and maybe he fears an insurrection from this Jesus character and his followers. It could be that. Or maybe, just maybe, he, like his daddy, he feared that Jesus might be a threat to his throne. There are any number of reasons this could have been the case. But regardless of whether he really wanted to kill Jesus or why, Jesus knew that this man, this ruler, this Herod, was an evil individual. And yet he would not be intimidated and even by someone like an earthly king. And so he tells the Pharisees, go tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow and the third day I reach my goal. He called him a fox. And in all of the, of the New Testament, in all of Jesus' life, not even the Sanhedrin, not even the Pharisees, not even Pilate will get that kind of personal derogatory remark. Because what does it mean what 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 is a fox a fox is a is a pest a fox is known for its destructiveness it's known for its cunningness but also as i read it put this week more of a nuisance than a threat to jesus herod was more of a nuisance than a threat which is a big statement because herod was the ruler of that region you, and he wasn't a threat well not to jesus Herod might want to kill him, but he wouldn't. Not until Jesus allowed him to. Jesus would continue to cast out demons and perform cures. He would do it today. He would do it tomorrow, and he would do it on the third day. In other words, 
he would keep doing what he was doing until what he was doing was done. Until it is finished. And so Herod's threat, well, no one's threats from the Garden of Eden until the time Antichrist will be thrown into the lake of fire. No one's threats, no one's actions ever change the plan of God. And Jesus' agenda, Jesus' plan, Jesus' work would not be changed whatsoever by what Herod had to say or do. Jesus would journey on today and tomorrow and on the third day. And he would not die in Perea. What, what did he say? Verse 33. For it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of where? Jerusalem. Jerusalem is where Jesus would die. Jerusalem and nowhere else. That was the plan all along. Herod couldn't change that plan. Jerusalem, of course, was where the temple was. Jerusalem is where the center of worship was. Jerusalem was where the sacrifices were made, and that's where his sacrifice would be made. Jerusalem is where the high priest on Yom Kippur every year would go into the Holy of Holies to make atonement for the sins of the nation, as Jesus would make atonement for the sins of all who will ever believe in him when he went. Of course, Jesus also wouldn't be the first prophet to die there. The Old Testament records a lot of this, more than we sometimes know or realize. But evil kings like Manasseh and Jehoiakim had prophets killed. In 2 Chronicles 24, we read about someone by the name of Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada. Jehoiada is one of my all-time favorite people in the Old Testament that, that... I spoke of on a Wednesday night, but most of us have never heard of. Most of us don't, don't remember him. But Zechariah, his son, spoke to King Joash. King Joash had become disobedient to the Lord, and because he'd forsaken the Lord, Joash was told by Zechariah, the Lord has forsaken you, and Joash had him killed there in the temple court. The prophet of God killed in the temple court. And it happened, again, in Jerusalem. Always Jerusalem. Which, by the way... You know this if you ever watch the news. It's still in the news to this day. Not a week goes by where Jerusalem isn't the center of world events on the nightly news. And all of it happened, all of this happened in the city of David where the son of David, the Messiah, would die. Herod was but a temporary pest, a temporary ruler, but Jerusalem was the city God had picked. So in verses 34 and 35, Jesus turned his attention to that city. And that's where I want to spend the rest of our time this morning. Look at verses 34 and 35 one more time. He says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not have it. Let me stop there. I know that's only 34, but up to this point, beloved, the Lord in his earthly ministry, what have we seen? He has been forthright in demonstrating, and with good reason, God's holy indignation against those who reject him. You know, we don't often, you know, we, we talk about the love of God and how God is love, yes. But... Sinners need to know, and hopefully this is part of what brought you to Christ, 
God has wrath against sinners. And, he, and Jesus made that clear throughout his ministry. And we've seen it so much in the past few chapters of Luke. I mean, Jesus doesn't hesitate calling the people who lead the people hypocrites. He's abundantly clear in his disdain for the religious establishment and how they don't truly believe in God. They don't truly trust in God. They, they're trusting in themselves. They don't truly honor God. They, you know, they worship Him. They honor Him with their lips, but their hearts are far from Him. Jesus is saying these things throughout His ministry and how they are keeping the people of God, God's chosen nation. They're keeping them from worshiping Him in spirit and in truth. Yet, and we need to take special note of this today, beloved, in a world which has great enmity for biblical Christianity being preached and being lived out, Jesus' indignation toward his enemies did not preclude him from grieving for them. He grieved for them. And Jesus practiced what he preached. He said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And Jesus did that. He loved his enemies and prayed for those who persecuted him, even the fox and even the hounds. He'd even ask they be forgiven. Why? For they knew not what they were doing. Jesus grieved for those who rejected him. And that's what's captured in these, these last two verses of, of Luke 13. And the, the son's grief here, the son of God's grief, mirrors that of the father. Who in Ezekiel 33.11 said, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why then do you die, O house of Israel? God, beloved, has always felt deeply for Israel. Even when they've been in rebellion, God has always felt deeply for Israel. And we see that kind of feeling in Jesus, that, that sadness when he thought of Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and those sent to her. And, and I, I want you to notice, look in your Bible and notice the present tense in that statement. Jesus wasn't talking about events of the past. He was talking about something that was still going on, that kills present continuous and stones, present, continuous. Israel's long history of rejecting those God sent to her, even to the point of killing them, it was not over. Later on in Matthew 23, which is the week Jesus will die, the week he will be crucified, Jesus tells the religious leaders there, I am sending, he would be sending future prophets and wise men and, and, wise men and scribes some of them you will crucify and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. And if we read our Bibles, that's exactly what did happen. My Sunday school lesson this morning was in Acts 8, which is when the believers are scattered out of Jerusalem. Why? Because a great persecution started. Stephen had just been killed and they were spread out. What Jesus said would happen did happen. Not only did they reject Jesus here, and reject Jesus to the point of killing him, but they would stone Stephen, they would execute James, the brother of John, and so on, and so on, and so on. Eleven of the twelve apostles, all except for John, 
did not live to an old age. But church history reveals and records for us the, all the many ways in which they died. And we've talked about that before when we did a series through all of them. A while back, in Luke 5, I believe it was, you can go back and listen to that online or, or just read up on it. They were all killed in brutal ways for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Israel here, and going forward, was really just doing what they'd been doing all along. And what were they doing? Expressing what was at the heart of all this. Well, what's at the heart of all sin, beloved? A dissatisfaction with God. A, a discontentment with the Word of God. Repeatedly running off to be like the world, trying to mix in the world with worshiping God as if those two can mix. But they're like oil and water, beloved. They can't mix. And, beloved, we see this so much today. We see it so much today. Professing Christians, professing churches. Churches in which there's no preaching of the Word. Gathering in which the goal is a man-centered... The attendee is to have an experience, a worship experience. The, the goal is man-centered rather than God-centered to glorify Him. Beloved, we're so arrogant if we think we're any better than Israel. We're so arrogant today, and I'm talking just the, the, the church at large, the uh, churches everywhere. We're so arrogant. Today we must be on guard. Because the visible church is as hard to distinguish from the world as Israel was. They always wanted to be like the other nations. They wanted to get rid of Jesus. Everything we do, beloved, must be not man-centered, but Christ-centered. Not man-centered, but to praise His name. To raise Him up. To glorify God. To extol him. We must be on guard, especially considering the bomb Jesus drops, the condemnation Jesus drops. In verse 35, he says, Behold, your house is left to you desolate. Your house is left to you desolate. You are a sinner, beloved. And if you reject the compassion of God, you will be condemned. Last week as we opened our service, we read Romans 8.1, which is one of the great verses of Scripture. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, now Israel, having persecuted and killed the prophets in the past, having been told they would, consider, they would continue to reject those who God sent to them in the future, they had Jesus in front of them. I mean, Jesus is right there. God is in the flesh right in front of them, and they continue to reject him. Their house would be left to them desolate. And when I say house, when Jesus says house, you got the temple, but more than that, the city of Jerusalem and really all of Israel. And notice, Jesus refers to your house, not God's house. They, they had co-opted, they, they had taken God's house over and were using it for their own purposes. Hence, people like the money changers and the hypocritical religious leaders. They had determined for themselves that they would not repent of their self-righteousness. That they were going to continue the course they were on. They would not heed the warnings. They would not heed the words of God. They were their own house now, so God would close His door. They were their own house now, so God would close 
his door. The, Jesus was saying, your day of opportunity is over. Your day of opportunity is over. Your house is left. And what did he say last week? You will come to the door. You will seek to enter the kingdom and you will find it shut. You will not be able to enter. Beloved, in the words of Jesus, they loved the darkness rather than the light. They, they loved the darkness so much that they tried to mix the darkness with the light so that you couldn't tell it was darkness. And maybe they didn't even realize they were doing it, but they were. And, beloved, many professing Christians today need to be told that's what they're doing. Maybe you need to realize this morning that's what you're doing. I pray the Holy Spirit's conviction upon you if that's the case. Beloved, just look at what happened to Israel after Jesus died. The word of God came true. In A.D. 70, there had been a Jewish revolt going on for about three years, four years. In A.D. 70, the Roman general Titus Vespasian comes in, and their house was left to them desolate. There was this long siege, legendary siege. A million people died. Over The people captured were in the six digits, hundreds of thousands. But... The, the historian Josephus records they destroyed Jerusalem, they destroyed the temple, and he records the de- devastation was so complete, the vast majority of the walls surrounding the city was so thoroughly destroyed, so thoroughly laid even with the ground, that you wouldn't have thought the city had ever been inhabited. Desolate. And it didn't stop there. In 439, the Eastern Roman Emperor uh, uh, Theodosius, he denies Jews the same legal rights as others. Um, Hundreds of years later, Jews are banished from Jerusalem entirely. You get the Crusades where you've got people coming in to fight Muslims over the city of Jerusalem and other things. And over the course of that time, the Jews are getting blamed for being Christ killers. And so there's massive violence against Jews throughout the centuries. And we know that the 20th century was no exception to that under the totalitarian regimes of Hitler and the forgotten one, Joseph Stalin. Even today, today there's a nation of Israel. Almost for 70 years they've been a nation again, a national political entity, and they are never not the focus of never-ending threats Something They're always the targets of terrorism. Israel was told by God multiple times there would be cursings for their disobedience. And now in every generation since then, there's been this small remnant of those Jews who did believe in Jesus. They join us today. They are part of Christ's church. They are, are part of that one body with us, Ephesians 2, Ephesians 3. But on the whole... Israel remains doing what they've always done, which is rejecting the word of God, rejecting those God has sent, rejecting his Christ. But what do we see here? We see that grace is coming. Grace is coming. And I say to you, Jesus says, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Beloved, there's coming a day when, as Paul writes in 11... Uh, Romans 11, verse 26, he says, All Israel will be saved. All Israel will be saved. God is going to keep 
every single promise he made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the nation. And we've been talking about that on Wednesday nights about Abraham so much. God's going to keep every single promise he made. In, a, in, in Isaiah 53, we spent five weeks on Isaiah 53 a while back. And if you recall, that's the, 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 such a clear pointing for 750 years before Jesus. It points to his crucifixion in such... It's the most vivid, detailed picture of Christ at the cross, even more so than the Gospels themselves. And yet, it's not so much a prophecy as it is a prophecy of Israel's future confession of repentance. That's their confession of repentance that they're going to make. They're going to confess their sins and realize Jesus is the one God sent them. Jesus is the one God put before them, and they killed him. Zechariah 12 Verse 10 says that when the spirit of grace and supplication come to them, the Holy Spirit, they will look on him whom they have pierced and mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and then they will be cleansed. Then their sin will be purged. Israel will be saved. And I say that because there's a lot of well-meaning, strong, Bible-believing Christians who today contend, and I've told you this before, that Israel's prior disobedience, because of that, God has ordained that the church take their place, basically, in inheriting all those promises. That the church is, in short, the new Israel. But beloved, let me say one thing about that. That I am convinced that is not and cannot be the case. Why? Because if God made promises to a literal Abraham, and he did, and a literal Isaac, and a literal Jacob, and a literal nation of Israel, then God is going to keep his promises to the literal nation of Israel. Because my God is faithful. My God doesn't make a promise to one and then say, no, not you, another guy is going to take your place. God doesn't do that. God made promises with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, specific people, and if we can't trust him to keep the promises he made to Israel, how can we promise him to keep the promises he's made to us when we disobey? All Israel will be saved, and that's where the grace and the compassion of our God wins the day. That's where mercy triumphs over judgment, and today... Beloved, the fox and the hounds, they want Jesus to go away. He's been killed once and it didn't work. And so they think they can kill the idea of Jesus now. They think that they can change the biblical Jesus. Redefine who Jesus is. Redefine what he said in so many things in the world today. People try to redefine what Jesus said to to make their particular view of of sin sound good. Beloved, so, so many of them... They want to deny the real Jesus, so on them the wrath of God abides. Unless they repent on them, the wrath of God will stay and be poured out. But if you repent of your sins, beloved, and if you entrust yourself to Jesus as He has been revealed in Scripture, the Son of God, the one God sent, beloved, do not be as disobedient Israel, whom Jesus wanted to gather, but they were not willing He will gather them in the future when they cry out, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But you and I, we cannot afford to delay 
our coming to him, not if we want to see the salvation of God. And so Jesus today bids you come. The one who is faithful and true bids you to come. The one who will continue to be faithful to Israel says come. Come as you are, but don't expect him to leave you as you are. Otherwise, why do you need to be saved? If you can keep living the life you've been living all along without any change, without any repentance, why do you need to be saved in the first place? If he saves you, he will become your everything. And no fox and no number of hounds will be able to dissuade you by any means. That's a promise from God. Their wrath will not overcome the Jesus of power, uh, the, the power of Jesus to save. And so he says, come to me and live for me and spend eternity with me in eternal blessing. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we wait for the Son and as we look forward to the day when we will get to witness all Israel being saved, I pray that we might walk in your light. A world filled with sin and death and even a corrupted church wants to redefine Jesus or simply do away with him. But by your grace, Father, I pray that we would not be turned to the right or to the left, but that we would keep our eyes on him, that we would keep our eyes on you. Father, I pray by the power of your spirit, that you might work in us both to will and to do, Philippians 2.13, both to will and to do according to your good pleasure, that our house might be your house, that our house might be not left desolate because it's your house, but that we might reside in your house forevermore. We pray this for your glory, not ours, for your glory, and we do so in the name of Jesus. Amen.